Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, David A. Simon, visiting assistant professor of law at the University of Kansas School of Law and project researcher at the Honkin School of Economics. In this installment of the podcast, which we have called Ex Cathedra, we will t- be taking a step back from the actual articles we normally discuss to talk to senior scholars about scholarship. We are interested in how senior scholars developed their research agenda, who influenced them, and why. In particular, we want to know how junior scholars have influenced these more senior scholars and for what reasons. To discuss the topic today, my guest is Mark Lemley, William H. Newcomb Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and the director of the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology. He teaches intellectual property, computer science and internet law, patent law, trademark law, antitrust, and remedies. Mark, uh, Professor Lumley is also a founding partner of Dury Tangri. Is that correct? I hope. Yep. And he litigates and counsels clients in all areas of IP, antitrust, and internet law. Professor Lumley is one of the most widely cited legal scholars around with a very diverse set of interests. So we thought we'd have him on to pick his brain about scholarship in general. Professor Lumley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So one of the things we're interested in is how you came to um, your current position. So we'd like to know how did you develop your interests and uh, what scholars or lawyers were in- influential in this? Uh, so I uh, I went to law school like for like most people, uh, because I had a degree in political science and didn't know what else to do with my life. Um, <laughs> and sort of to my great surprise, uh, I really loved law school and, uh, and the intellectual ideas uh, contained therein. Uh, so I, I didn't go in thinking I was going to be a professor or indeed to do anything related to law, uh, but I, I was very greatly attracted to it. Um, when I was in law school, the subject matter that was of most interest to me was antitrust law. Uh, I had economics background and training in uh, in uh, industrial organization and, and market structure. Um, but at the end of the 1980s, there wasn't much, much antitrust law left. Uh, and one of the most interesting parts of antitrust that was still alive was its intersection with this up-and-coming new field of intellectual property. Uh, so I got into intellectual property and technology law sort of through a back door, uh, through my interest in antitrust law and, um, and, and its intersection with uh, law and technology. Were there any professors that had a particular impact on you and began your academic career, or did you um, find academic interests through practicing law? Uh, the answer is a little bit of both, uh, but yes. So there were definitely professors, uh, Tom Jordy at Berkeley, who I served as a research assistant for was working in this field. Uh, and so he is, he helped me, uh, to, uh, to sort of develop these interests. I co-authored papers with him, uh, early on in my career, um, other people who were very influential uh, early for me, uh, Rob Murgis, uh, now at Berkeley, uh, was at the time a professor at Boston University, uh, and he read my student note uh, published on the patent misuse doctrine and sent me a letter. This was before the days when email was common, 
um, uh, saying, congratulations, this is a really impressive student note. You should be very proud of yourself. Here's why you're completely wrong. Um, and, uh, and that led to a very interesting ongoing conversation and ultimately to us uh, publishing a, a casebook together on intellectual property, which we still, uh, we still publish. Uh, the other kind of senior scholar uh, as a junior person who was incredibly gracious and who has really influenced me is Pam Samuelson uh, at Berkeley. Uh, I didn't know Pam, but was a huge admirer of her work. And so when I first joined the uh, law teaching profession, I uh, cheekily reached out to her and introduced myself and, and uh, said, hey, I'm working in your field. And uh, uh, and uh, here's what I'm working on. And instead of ignoring me or being dismissive, she was extremely gracious and has been sort of very helpful um, uh, advising on scholarship uh, and uh, has become a friend. So it's, it sounds like you had some nice um, faculty mentors and that you came about them in different ways. One person reached out to you. You reached out to um, – Pam Samuelson, who we're going to have on on this program, um, and uh, from what I can tell, you you um, also reciprocate with younger scholars by co-authoring a lot of papers and and working with people that you have mutual interests with. And I'm wondering how that that works. How do you how do you approach? Do you approach younger scholars? Do younger scholars approach you? How do you find out about their work? What's the dynamic? Right. So, yeah, so the, uh, I, I, I like to co-author. I have, uh, I, I, last time I counted something like 60 different co-authors um, uh, over my career, uh, some of whom are senior scholars, uh, some of whom are at my level, but many of whom are junior scholars. Um, and I, you know, I, for me, um, I'm somebody who processes ideas externally. Right? The way I figure something out is not locking myself in a room and thinking about it. It's talking through ideas and problems and what about this. Uh, and so co-authorship for me is a great way to um, find a person to talk things through with who's equally invested and equally knowledgeable in the, in the area. Um, my, my co-authorships have come about in a variety of ways. Uh, I definitely reach out to some people, uh, particularly if I think there's a sort of complementary uh, interest right there working on something that sort of fits or connects to something that I'm working on. I have had a bunch of people reach out to me and uh, have done uh, co-authorships that way. Some of it is more organic. It's a bunch of people sitting around uh, at a conference or standing in the halls and talking about a topic and realizing that there's an interesting question here. And as far as we know, nobody has, has uh, resolved it. Uh, and those often lead us to to think, well, hey, we should figure this out. So for for the people that reach out to you, do you recommend this as a way of um, connecting with senior scholars, maybe asking them to co-author or read a draft? Uh, what what do you think is a good way to connect with senior scholars? I mean, I, I think you should absolutely uh, reach out to people and ask them to read a draft, ask them for suggestions or ideas. Um, uh, on your uh, on your work, um, and certainly in my field, intellectual property and technology law, uh, the community I think has been very welcoming. That's what I've found, and it's something that I and others have tried to to pay forward. Um, you know, 
the asking somebody out of the blue you've never met before to uh, to say, hey, why don't we write a paper together might not be the most productive way to go about it. Um, one of the things that I think distinguishes a successful from an unsuccessful co-authorship is how well the authors kind of interact and talk and work together. Um, that's not absolutely critical for all kinds of co-authorship, but for me, it's the thing that makes co-authorship fun and, uh, and more productive. Uh, not let's each write our separate sections and then glue them together, but let's kind of work together uh, on everything. Uh, and, and so that means also, I think that not just sort of, we should work well together, but our writing style should mesh. Uh, my favorite co-authorships are ones where I couldn't tell you by the time the paper is published, kind of who wrote which sentence in most cases, mm -hmm. uh, that they've just kind of, you know, been kind of merged and, and jumbled together and into a pretty seamless whole. Sure. So and I think so I think both of those things require a little bit more kind of knowledge of each other. Right. So someone you meet, someone you've talked to and sort of, you know, enjoy talking ideas through someone whose work you've read and and not just think, hey, yeah, that's that's a good paper. But, hey, yeah, that's a paper that sort of reads like something I would write that's in my style. Right. So that that um, that brings me to uh, another point I wanted to explore, which was. What kind of articles, what kind of scholarship draw your interest as someone who's more senior in the field? Is it style? Is it uh, substance or particular topics? What kinds of things interest you and sustain your attention? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I try um, uh, and, and mostly succeed, I think, to read everything that's published in my fields in intellectual property and antitrust and kind of um, AI and robotics, at least. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting to me, what sort of kind of makes me hold on and read through um, is, uh, is a new idea uh, or alternatively new evidence, new data. Um, you know, I think there are other types of useful articles that kind of summarize what's happened, that summarize cases, that kind of analyze cases uh, and make arguments about them. That is less valuable to me just because I try to keep up on the case law on my own uh, than it might be for someone who's not uh, as immersed in it. Um, but the things that are interesting to me are, you know, what's the, if, if there's a kind of genuinely new idea here, something I have not thought about. Um, and you know, and, and I guess this, I would say, especially if um, there's something that strikes me at first blush as wrong and you can persuade me that it's right, or at least that it's more complicated. So, so it sounds like um, you're looking for some kind of fresh perspective, something that maybe you hadn't thought of before, something novel or original, for lack of better words. Um, but is there um, is there any... Uh, advantage or disadvantage to maybe taking too bold of a stand or trying to force ideas um, that are very new and very original, but maybe don't fit within the existing literature? Well, so let me, let me distinguish between those two statements because I think they're somewhat different, right? Um, 
I think kind of reaching outside the norm uh, is an advantage, right? Uh, you know, bringing bringing something to bear that sort of we didn't have, right? Whether it's a kind of new idea from outside law that you're bringing in, uh, or here's a problem that nobody else recognizes as even coming. Um, those are all valuable things. They're ways of bringing kind of genuinely new idea. Um, so if if that's what you mean by bold, I would say go for it. I do think kind of one of the things that people are often either explicitly encouraged to do or feel that they need to do as junior scholars that I don't find helpful um, are the sort of grand unified theories of the world. Um, you know, I, that's I think part of the problem is some of those kind of broader grandiose theories appeal to law reviews. Uh, and so you may be more likely to show up in the in the Harvard or Yale law reviews if you uh, if you uh, claim to have solved all of the world's problems. Uh, the likelihood that you have, in fact, solved all the world's problems in your first or second year of teaching is pretty small. Um, and so I, you know, I find much more valuable uh, what you would call kind of mid-level scholarship. Right. Here's a here's evidence that advances or bears on a particular existing debate. Here's a kind of new frontier in which we can apply existing uh, uh, theories, um, uh, or here's a kind of particular new application that leads to a surprising result. Those, to me, are sort of much more likely to be successful uh, than, uh, well, nobody's been able to figure out uh, an overarching theory of privacy, but I've got it. Right. Right. So... There are two uh, strands I want to pull apart from from what you just said. The first has to do with the the idea that new evidence can be helpful and is interesting. And uh, at least in IP over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, there seems to be a somewhat empirical turn where there's lots of really great empirical work coming out. Uh, of course, not everyone is equipped statistically or otherwise to do this kind of work. So when you say um, empirical, do you mean uh, data-driven? Do you, uh, and I mean quantitatively, or do you mean qualitative research or both? Or um, for those that aren't maybe well-versed in empirical methods, do you have any suggestions for how they might contribute to that body of research? Yeah, so I mean both. Um, I, I do think uh, that it's, um, I, I think data and sort of carefully analyzed data is uh, is extremely useful in a way that anecdotes uh, are not and can mislead. Um, that doesn't mean I think that you have to have a PhD in order to make a valuable contribution with information, right? And collecting and evaluating cases. Uh, just descriptively, I think can also be uh, can also be very valuable. So one thing that's changed in the 25 years I've been teaching, I, when I started out, I was maybe the only law professor and one of only a few people in the in the world who were doing empirical analysis of the of the intellectual property system. And I, you know, I have an undergraduate degree in economics. I've taken some statistics, but I am by no means methodologically sophisticated. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of this was sort of self-training. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and I think a lot of my empirical work has been sort of very helpful and very influential. Uh, 
Um, it is uh, remarkable to me uh, in the ensuing 25 years, kind of what we've seen in terms of the growth of people who really do have great methodological sophistication coming into intellectual property and to other fields as well. Um, I think that's uh, marvelous. Um, I think in in some senses, right, they're, uh, they're leaving me behind in terms of kind of my ability to do uh, uh, cutting edge empirical work, uh, but that's great. Um, now, I think as you point out, not everybody can do it, um, but that doesn't mean you can't actually sort of kind of bring new knowledge and new data to bear. And just the fact that we're looking for data, I think really is a fundamental difference from how law professors thought about their job a generation ago. Do you think that um, all, as, as far as you can speak for people outside of IP, do you think that most junior scholars should be at least interested in the empirical questions and learning about some of these methods and if not incorporating them in their own work. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think a couple of things to note about that, right? One is that um, the data is much more accessible than it used to be. Uh, so the company I founded, Lex Machina, has uh, now all of the federal civil cases uh, since the early, since around 2000, available for academics. Uh, all of the filings, everything that happens in those cases, coding for um, uh, for outcomes. Uh, so those were things you couldn't go find in the in the ni- 1990s when I started teaching, except by showing up to a courthouse and going through a bunch of paper files. So data is more accessible. Uh, But independently of that, I think some baseline level of understanding of empirical work is important as a member of the faculty, even if you don't yourself do that work, because you're going to be listening to papers, you're going to be evaluating people on the entry level market, evaluating people for tenure um, who do this kind of work and having enough knowledge, enough understanding uh, to... Uh, to be able to think critically about it, I think is is an important part of being a law professor in the modern world. Right. Um, so I, I mentioned there were two strands of what you had said that I wanted to pull apart. And so we dealt with the first strand, which is the the empirical turn in a lot of legal scholarship. And the second strand is really uh, directed more towards developing a particular research agenda for junior scholars. Um, so I guess I'd ask the question this way. The first part of the question would be, when you set out uh, earlier in your career, did you have a quote-unquote research agenda in mind? And second, um, do you think that aside from the document called the research agenda that people are supposed to have, scholars should have some kind of trajectory that they're looking to follow? So I, I'm probably in a minority on this uh, uh, topic. So I, both in the sense that I didn't really start out with a research agenda. Uh, I think that was less um, uh, a requirement uh, going on the teaching market 25 years ago. Um, but also in the sense that I'm a little bit of an eclectic person. So I don't only do empirical scholarship. I don't only do theoretical scholarship. I don't only do policy scholarship. I do all of them. I do them across a variety of fields. 
Um, so I think having, uh, you know, I think having a list of kind of ideas and topics that you're interested in and want to pursue, that's great. Uh, I definitely have that. Um, does it translate into here is the articles I intend to write in the order I will write them? Absolutely not. Uh, there are things that have been sitting on my uh, to be written list for more than 20 years. Um, and there are, you know, things that are, I think I'm going to write next, um, uh, get bumped by something else. Something happens in the world, case comes down, and I think that's crazy. How could you think that? And that leads me to think about, you know, why it is that courts are, are going in this direction. Um, but the other thing I'll say, which is a little bit more of a kind of gestalt uh, answer, has to do with the nature of the creative process. Uh, a number of times I will sit down thinking, okay, it's time to write this article. This is the article that needs to be written next. I'm going to sit down and do it. And I just can't stop thinking about something else instead. Uh, and I think you've got to follow that instinct. Um, you've got to, you know, creativity in writing is something that all you can do is provide the uh, the time and the environment for it to flow. You can't guarantee when you sit down on any given day that you're going to be able to write effectively. Uh, and following the instinct that says, gosh, you know what, even though topic X is really important uh, and it's the next thing on my research agenda, new topic Y is the one that's really attracting to me. I think that makes it sort of both easier to write and it probably produces better. Follow your nose. I guess is what you're saying. Yep. Um, I, okay, so I want to close out the interview with one question that's that's um, specific to you because I'm very curious about it, which is how you manage to be a partner in a law firm while teaching and doing all the other engagements you have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether you think that's something people might be able to do who aren't you uh, and how you go about doing it. Oh Lord, I, you know, I mean, so it's I, I I it's hard to know how to answer that question. I mean, I you know I I have a lot of things to do, and so I do a lot of work, uh, but I don't work all the time. Um, I do tend to multitask. I do a fair bit of writing, sitting in the back of conferences. Um, I, I don't know that that's a good idea. Um, uh, I don't know that it, if, it, it, even if it works for me, it works for other people. Um, you know, I, but I also think it's it, it, different people's kind of intellectual styles are different, right? I, for me, being involved in a large number of different things has a positive feedback effect. I'm more likely to get interesting ideas by seeing these connections between things that might otherwise be unrelated. Um, and so for me, I think there's, you know, the, the time that I lose in kind of, you know, practicing law is more than made up for both by the, the kind of richness of understanding of the world that I get that goes into my articles. Uh, and I think also the uh, way it improves my teaching. Um, it doesn't mean it's for everybody. Um, I do think, especially I, I, again, uh, I, I ignored all advice, uh, and, uh, served as of counsel at a law firm starting from my very first day teaching. 
Um, I'm not sure that's a great thing to do. Um, that said, I, you know, it worked for me and, and I feel like actually being a practitioner, knowing what's going on in the world, it, it does make me a better teacher and a better mm. scholar. Um, I think you probably ought to get a little bit of a sense of kind of how much you can do, what the boundaries are and so forth before you delve too heavily into that. Um, practice can grow to uh, uh, seize a larger percentage of your time if you're not careful. So you got to put boundaries around what you do and how much time you spend on it. Um, and that's true whether you do it in a formal sense, like like my law firm, or whether you do it in a kind of one-off consulting. Right. And I suppose that's probably true of the academic work, even on its own, or the litigation work, even on its own. It can overwhelm you if you don't set boundaries. So maybe um, if I can summarize your advice is it's good to figure out what your boundaries are when you're, when you're trying to make your own way in the academic world. And maybe for some people that will include a little bit of practice or expert witness work and some people it won't. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And it's, and it's, you know, and it, it, it extends beyond practice, I think, right. It's, um, you know, I think there are people who are sort of best served writing kind of, you know, one deeply thought huge article a year, um, I, you know, and there are people who are best served by sort of, you know, working on six or seven smaller things at a time. Uh, and that has to do, I think, with the way you think, um, uh, the, how you process ideas, um, as well as just kind of how, how fast you write. Great. Well, uh, that's really useful information for all of us junior academics. And we want to thank you very much for your time and for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Okay. No problem. Thanks. Thanks.